All right, Romans chapter 8. Well, we're in verse 10 this morning. You see the title of the message is, You Don't Owe the Flesh Anything. Okay, so we're going to look at this concept. And, and really, the, the way this passage is going to lay out this morning is, we're going to jump into uh, to Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Chapter or, or verse 12 is kind of the linchpin of this um, passage that we're going to look at because you see the word therefore. And so therefore is going to kind of build off of what's there in verses 9 through 11. And then it's also going to spring us forward further explaining why you don't owe the flesh anything. And so that's kind of the layout this morning. Let's read verse 10 and we'll hop right in. Actually, let's read verse 9 to kind of ramp up to get to verse 10. He says in in chapter 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And, you know, we looked last week, and Paul is going to begin to use a lot of what we call first-class conditions in the Greek. And that means if this is true, and let's assume that it is, you can use the word since. And so he does that in verse 9. He's not questioning whether or not the people that he's writing to are saved. He's reminding them through an argument, argumentation device, this first-class condition, um, that they've got the Spirit of God dwelling in them, okay, and that they're in the Spirit. And we're going to see in verse 10, not only are we in the Spirit, but in verse 10, Christ is in us. Verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And so we see in verse 10... That not only is, are, are you in the Spirit or you're in Christ, but also Christ is in you. And, and we call that a reciprocal union. Anybody remember uh, fractions in math or is, have you all put that out of your head <laughs> by now? Remember, remember reciprocals, the, the opposite, the, the, you know, one half is the reciprocals two over one, right? This, I know that's enough math lessons for today, but, I, but, but you know what I'm saying? This reciprocal union, you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And there's this, this unity, this union that God provides by placing you in Christ and placing the indwelling spirit of God in you. And, and again, Paul uses a first class condition. If Christ is in you, and he is a believer, he's making a statement of fact. And if this is true, two things are true of you. We find it in verse 10, what these things are. Well, the first thing he says is the body is dead because of or through, that's actually the Greek preposition, dia there, through sin. What does he mean by that? Well, real simply put, the body, uh, this is why everybody dies. This is why everybody is on the winding down side of health. This is why we've got sickness. This is why we've got decay. This is why we've got disease. This all is all explained because sin is in the world, right? And that's not news to us. We saw that back in Romans chapter 5. We know that, that everybody's part of that one statistic that 10 out of 10 people die. And we know that everybody is on a decay schedule of some sort bodily. I mean, not really a pleasant thing to talk about, but it's still true. And so he says the body is, is um, dead because of sin. And so uh, what's interesting is this is the process that the believer goes through, just like an unbeliever, but what's on the other side of it for the believer? And that's what we're going to find in this verse is life. And, and not only life, but as we get into verse 18 and, and going forward, we're going to see that part of our inheritance as a believer is a glorified body. And the choir said, hallelujah, right? I mean, these, these aches and pains and these sicknesses and disease and these hurts that we all experience, even, even emotionally, will one, ba- one day be completely removed from us and we'll have these new bodies. And that's something that we have to look forward to. You know, I think in, in light of the argument that he's making regarding sanctification, here's the thing. Why would a believer then, if this is true of this, these bodies and they're going to be dying and there's, there's no reason to cater to the lust of the flesh, which is fulfilled through our human bodies, then, then why do we yield ourselves to sin? Why do we carry out sin's desires of, of pleasure through these bodies? And, and those of you know, there's no lasting pleasure in physical things. Um, in fact, there's going to be a lot of disappointed kids tomorrow morning around 10 a.m. You know why? Because all the presents under the tree are going to be opened. And that means they have to wait an entire year for that, that buildup, that excitement that Christmas brings. We all remember that day. Uh, 
Christmas was like, you know, you're up at 4.30 in the morning trying to get your parents out of bed so that you could open gifts. And by 10 a.m., you felt like crying because everything was gone and there was nothing else. And you, you dove behind the tree and looked for more and looked out in the garage and just hoped that something, there was something more coming. You know, and, and in that sense, we do that, we do that in our physical lives. We think that certain amounts of pleasure, bodily pleasure, are going to meet our needs. And so we chase life, we chase money, we chase cars, we chase careers, we, we chase any kind of physical pleasure that, that we can get. And, and those of you who have experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're going to go to a really nice restaurant one night, so you don't even, I mean, you skip lunch so you can just really cut loose that night. And then you get home and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have cut loose. I'm feeling it now. And, and, and these physical pleasures don't, don't last. And I think there's a, he's, he's making a case here because we're right in the middle of his concept of sanctification. Why are you presenting yourself to sin? Don't, don't go on presenting yourself to sin. Don't be carnally minded that results in death. And yet that's the very thing many times that we make as our primary pursuit in life is physical pleasure, whether that's a house, whether that's a car, whether that's a 401k, whatever you want to put into the sentence there, these are all physical pleasure pursuits. But in contrast, in verse 9, if Christ is in you, not only is the body dead because of sin, but verse 10 tells us that the spirit is life because of righteousness. And we've got this, uh, this huge uh, adversative, this, this contrast, but... You know, you, the body's dead, but you got something much better inside of you. And it's the spirit of God. It's, it's life. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's great about the spirit of God's presence in your life, and we're going to see as we just keep working through Romans chapter 8, you're going to see this more clearly, more clearly. And I hope that by the time you get out of Romans chapter 8, that you can believe and be convinced that once you're saved, you're always saved. The moment you put your faith in Christ, it's a done deal. You are saved. That's what Paul wants to convince you of here in Romans chapter 8. And I think we'll see that. But, but why is the Spirit's presence a guarantee of eternal life? Well, we already saw in, in the first four and a half chapters of Romans that the moment you put your faith in Christ, you're justified. Which, if you recall, that word means to declare righteous. God, in his, his judicial gavel, banged it down the moment you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ and his finished work for you, and he declared you righteous. But there's something even more, and we've looked at that, that God not only just declared you righteous, but he actually changed your position in life. He placed you in Christ. And because you're in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he is our righteousness. Remember, that's different. If I can just take my notes here, that's different than just offering righteousness to somebody. See, it's much more connected. We talked about that reciprocal union. See, because you're in Christ and Christ is righteous, you're righteous. See, see how guaranteed that is? Because is there any day, do you have any doubt in your mind that one day God the Father is going to look at God the Son and say, wow, the the sheen's coming off of you now. You're not as perfect as you once were. You're not looking as good as you once did. You're not behaving as well as you once did. You're, you're not pleasing to me anymore. Could that ever happen in the mind of God the Father? No, he's, he's eternally satisfied with this son and the work that he performed for you. And so because you're in Christ, your righteousness is an unchanging righteousness. And this is one of the things that he's talking about. And so the key to life, not only eternal life, future life, but, but also now, abundant life, living, is this indwelling righteous life of Jesus Christ, which is produced by the Spirit of God. And remember, we're in this great sanctification section of Romans. And so he's going to get very practical here as we move on into verse 11. And he's going to say this, much similar to what we have in the passage in Ephesians. But in verse 11, he says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's a mouthful there. Let's try to kind of break it down a little bit. If the spirit dwells in you, first class condition, and he does. 
Okay? He's, not, he's not trying to create any doubt here. He's actually making an argument from the original language to, to show them that these things are true. And he wants their minds occupied with this. And that's why in verse 12, when he says, therefore, he's referring back because he wants to change our thinking. He wants to lift our eyes up to these glorious truths of what we have now that we're in Christ. And he says this. Now, I'm going to let this, this sink in. There's a song uh, recently. Oh, I'd say recently. It's probably, that's, that's when you know you're getting older. Like recent could be five years. It could be 15 years. Sometime in the last 20 years, a song came out. I think it's recent. Really singing about this, the, that, the, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is, is dwelling in you. So the same spirit, and, and think about this. This is the spirit of God who provided life. In the body of Jesus Christ, when there was no life, when, when he was laying lifeless in the tomb, he brought him back to life. And guess what? This very same spirit who did it to Jesus uh, will give you life in your mortal bodies. That's what this passage says. The very same spirit who's already done it can do it again. See, that's the, the confidence that he wants uh, to breed here. And in fact, when we look at this word give, it's, it's interesting. You, I, this was one of those passages you got to wrestle with a little bit because the word give is future tense. So you're thinking, oh, okay, in the future, he's going to give a slide. In the future, he's going to raise us from the dead. And guess what? That is true. In fact, it's in the indicative mood in the Greek, which means it's a mood of fact. It's a promise guarantee. You can bank on it. God's making a promise that he will raise you via his spirit, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guaranteed mood of fact. But I don't know if you noticed this or not, but notice he doesn't say our immortal bodies. He, he says, in fact, what does he say? Let's go back to the passage. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And so although that's true in glorification, that's going to happen, I think he's speaking about something practical right now as it relates to our sanctification. And, and, and guess what? The Spirit of God doesn't just give life. The Spirit of God is life. See the distinction there? Because if you've got the Spirit of God dwelling in you and he's life, guess what you've got residing in you? You've got life. You've, you've got life right now. You don't have to wait for the beyond the, 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 this future time when you'll have a glorified body, you can begin enjoying life right now. And that's why he's going to say, therefore, you don't owe the flesh nothing. And he says it a little bit more proper than that. But that's, that's why you don't owe the flesh anything. You've got life inside of you right now that you can enjoy at this moment. And I think he's talking about abundant life, Christ-honoring living. It's available to you right now. You know, I think so many times we get in these bad habits as Christians and we, and we just get used to presenting ourselves to sin and used to presenting ourselves to the flesh. And we just think we can never snap out of it and we can't change the way we are and we can't stop sinning. I, maybe I can control it in this area, but I can never stop it in this area. I'm too weak. I'm, I, I don't have the strength. And you know, Paul wants you to know you got life available right now. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to be a debtor to the sin nature. Every time he shows up, you know, imagine if you, has anyone ever been in debt? You don't have to raise your hand. You know, it reminds me of those old, uh, you know, mobster movies, you know, the sin nature is kind of like Vinny, you know, the, the guy, the Vinny coming around the corner looking to collect on that debt. And it's like, every time you turn down a dark alley, Vinny's there to, you know, take your money and, and pound your head in. And that's exactly what the sin nature does. He, he, he's, he wants to make you a debtor. And Paul's message is you don't owe him anything anymore. You don't owe Vinny or the sin nature anything anymore. You know, we've got life. That's the message. In fact, when you think about the Christian life, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we talk about this a lot, but the Christian life is not about spiritual disciplines. It's not about what you do and don't do. It's not about your external actions. All of those come into play. But when we talk about foundationally what the Christian life is, it's Jesus Christ living in and through you. That's the Christian life. That's the only thing that can be categorized as Christian is the life of Christ living and working in and through you. 
So how does God give this life to our mortal bodies? Well, let's go back to the verse because he tells us clearly, verse 11, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How? Through his spirit who dwells in you. And you know, this is why Paul could not live the life in Romans 7. Remember, he was missing that key ingredient. He was missing the person of the Spirit of God, empowering him. He had all the right desires. He had all the right intentions. He, have, you ever, have you ever just had in your life the, the exact right intentions to do something you know you should do, and then for some reason you couldn't follow through with it? Does that ever happen to you? I mean, that's exactly what Paul was doing in Romans 7. And so as we see here, the Spirit who dwells in us is the one who's going to enliven us to, to be able to carry out and execute the desires of our new nature. Paul recognizes that the believer has life to live out, but this life is present in us because the Spirit of God indwells and desires to produce the life through us. That's why he can say this. Uh, and this is why he can say, not only is he going to give you glorification life, not only is he going to give you a glorified body, we're going to see that later in Romans 8, but he's going to say right now because the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, you got life in your mortal bodies. So take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. I mean, who wants to live a miserable life? Who, who wants to cry in your eggs every morning? Who wants to cry in your milk every evening? I mean, who wants that? Are you kidding me? If you've got that available, if we've got that available, why don't we take advantage of that? That's kind of the message here. And so he's going to say, therefore, verse 12, therefore, bre- I could have found a scarier Vinny. That guy doesn't look too. Actually, that's the guy who's paying Vinny, I think. So, okay, verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Oh, I thought you said we weren't in debt. Well, let's see. Let's keep reading. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, now I've made this point a couple times. It's very important, and it's, it's an important phrase to notice. Notice, live according to the flesh. And the reason he says that there is because the believer could never be categorized as being in the flesh ever again. Because the believer's in who? Well, believer's in Christ. That's an unchanging position. And so when we're talking about living according to the flesh, we're talking about the believer has a choice. He or she has two sources from which to live life. They can live from the source of the Spirit of God or they can live from the source of the flesh or the sin nature or indwelling sin as we've kind of used those as synonymous terms as we've been studying through Romans 6 and 7. And so he's talking about living from that source. Therefore, based on what we just read, verse 11, based on the fact that the Spirit of God is indwelling you, that you've got life, that the Spirit of God wants to produce life in your mortal bodies, you're not a debtor to the flesh anymore. You don't owe the flesh anything. And and this word debtor is a continual and present state of being. It means to owe somebody, owe, owe something, uh, it means someone who's morally bound to the performance of any duty. You know, and isn't that exactly how sin shows up in your life? It, just demanding that you drop everything to fulfill its lusts and desires. Just demanding at this moment, drop what you're doing and start thinking about me. Start thinking about what I want you to think about. He doesn't come in like a gentleman. Oh, excuse me, do you have a minute for me? No, he comes right in demanding in your ear, in your thinking, constantly berating you, coming after you to knock you out of fellowship with the Lord. I was talking to somebody uh, about a week ago, and, and we were talking about this, these passages in Romans. And she said, she told me, she said, you know, I was, I was driving in my car, and I was listening to Christian radio, and she said, you know what? I was just really enjoying fellowship with the Lord. Was just, it was one of those times where, you know, sometimes you drive in the car and the music's on and it's just background noise. You don't hear it. But she said, this time I was driving, I was listening to the words. I was just really enjoying the Lord. And then she said, in about the third or fourth song in, when I realized I was enjoying the Lord, the most vile thought popped into my mind. And she said, how does that happen? This is the, the question. It said, that's your sin nature. And you know what? The sin nature doesn't want you in fellowship with the Lord. 
So he'll, he'll throw anything in there but Jesus Christ. I, I don't care if it's religion. I don't care if it's good works. I don't care. If you're enjoying Jesus Christ, in some way the sin nature is going to try to distract you. Anything but Jesus Christ, anything. You mean giving money to the March of Dimes, helping the Salvation Army, scooping food at a soup kitchen, um, all of these you know, good things in and of themselves? Yes, any of those things. We always think the sin nature is trying to get you to do something vile. I mean, forget about that. He's much more deceptive in the area of religion, much more deceptive in that area. And so that's why when we talk about growing spiritually and walking with the Lord, we're talking about walking according to the Spirit, setting our mind on the things that the Spirit of God has got his mindset on. And let me tell you what the Spirit of God has his mindset on. Singular focus, his name's Jesus Christ. That's what he's all about. So if you're going through life and you're cranking through life and Jesus isn't even a part of your thinking, you're walking according to the flesh. That's, that's a great way to tell. Is Jesus Christ who you're occupied with? Are you occupied with him? I'm not talking to you to give him a cursory nod in the morning or at, a me, or at meal time. You know, it's like, hey, gotcha. You know, gotcha for a second. I'm talking about occupation. I'm talking about what are you focused on? Is Jesus enough for you or do you need something else? But you know what? We are debtors, but not to the flesh. Do you know that as a believer, and we've looked at this in detail in Romans 6, your relationship to the sin, the sin nature, sin's power, has been forever and completely altered? You, you've been severed from it. There's not this direct connection anymore. You don't owe the sin nature, anything. You don't owe it one thing. You know, our indebtedness used to be to the flesh. You used to have to pay up every time Vinny walked around the corner. You had to do it. You were forced to. You were in debt. You owed allegiance to the sin. But now our indebtedness is to the Spirit of God. And that's what's implied in the passage. We don't owe the flesh anything. You know, why would you and I go on presenting or living according to um, the sin nature? And, and, and he's going he's to give some reasons why you shouldn't anymore. But one of the reasons we've just been looking, I mean, it just feels like we talk about a lot. But you understand when you present yourself to sin, when you present yourself to the sin nature, when you walk according to the flesh, guaranteed result, death. Death Death, death. And so we sit there and say, who wants to be crying in their Cheerios every morning? And no one, no one says, oh yeah, me, man, bring that life on. I, I want it, I want it, I want it. Nobody says it, but through our choices and our decisions to occupy our mind with either the Spirit of God or the things of the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, or God's provision for sin's power, instead of occupying our mind with that, we occupy our mind with the things of the flesh. And then we wake up and cry in our Cheerios. And we say, golly, I hate this life. I want something much more than that. Well, God wants something much more for you too. And it all starts here in the truth of the word of God and to begin to change your thinking. God wants to change what you think about. You may have 60 years in this life and you've never thought this way before. Today, you need to start thinking this way because you know it doesn't work the other way. Some of you here are in your teens, and if you can catch this now, I'm telling you, you can save your life a lifetime of misery if you can catch this truth right now. This is, this is serious business. This isn't a game. This isn't just, hey, let's just come to church and sit down. This will affect your life and the quality of how you live it. This is that important, and that's what Paul is getting to here. In fact, one of my favorite verses, has anyone ever ever asked you what your favorite Bible verse is? I, the older I get, that's a harder and harder question to answer. I don't know if you found that. One of my favorite Bible verses lately is in 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll just read it to you. It's verses 14 and 15, because it's talking about source. It's talking about focus. It's talking about occupation. It's talking about changing the way you think about everything you do. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. 
Now notice verse 15. This is exactly what we've been studying in Romans 6 and 7. And he died for all that, the, that those who live should, know, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You know, your life is not your own. <laughs> That's the concept. So it's not wake up and tell Jesus what you're going to do today. Yeah, Jesus, this is my schedule. This is my agenda. This is what I'm going to do. Come bless this. Come bless this mess most of the time is what goes on with our life. No, it's waking up and saying, Lord, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to you, and I am going to present my members to you today. Lord, what do you, what do you want to accomplish today, Jesus? What do you want to do through my life? I'm just, I just want to walk with you. I just want to enjoy you. And if, and if that has to happen and I'm working in a factory or I'm working in the corporate office or I'm driving a, a beat-up Pinto or I'm driving a Lamborghini, does, none of that matters. Are you enjoying Jesus Christ? That's the deal. Is it about your plan, bless my plan, Lord, or is it about the Lord's plan? And I just kind of want to get in line with that. I want to get in step with where he's going. So why are we not debtors to the flesh? What you're going to notice here in the next three verses, starting in verse 13, is you're going to notice three fours. Okay, Look at verse 13. The first word is four. Verse 14, the first word is four. Verse 15, the first word is four. Okay, So he's going to further explain. He's going to give us examples why you're not a debtor to the flesh, why you don't owe the flesh anything. And so we start in verse 13. He says this, For if you live... Uh, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the, I mean, tell it like it is, Paul. I mean, this don't even mince words. I mean, he tells you exactly. If you live according to the flesh, you're, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so this, this first argument he gives in this verse is if you live according to the flesh, and, and again, he uses a first-class condition. Let's assume that you do, for argument's sake. Let me tell you the guaranteed outcome of that. You're... You're not going to dodge the, the, the roundhouse on this one, okay? The uppercut's going to find you, <laughs> using some boxing terminology, okay? You're going to get whacked upside the head. If you live according to the flesh, this is guaranteed, you'll die. Paul is saying that if you presently and habitually live your life presented to the flesh, you'll die. You'll die. You'll experience death. Now, the great news for the believer is you'll never experience the second death. You'll never experience that because Jesus has died for you in your place so that you would never have to face that penalty. You won't have to face the second death, but you'll face the natural consequences of sin in this life, which is described as death. Remember, death by definition, just a generic definition, means separation. Anybody ever sinned and been separated from a relationship, destroyed a relationship through sin? Any, any children ever done something and felt distant from your parents because of the choices that you made? That's a death-like existence. That's what we're talking about, these types of things. And so how does this happen? How do you live according to the flesh? Well, we've talked about it a lot. You begin to entertain the thoughts from the flesh. And not only that, but you begin to position your body, your members, to carry out its lustful, selfish desires. Remember, when we talked about in Romans 6, and let me bring up this next point, you, you basically put yourself in a position nearby, ready to be utilized for the flesh's destructive purposes. You know, we use this image when we were in Romans 6, this idea of presenting, and all it means is, is that you put yourself nearby the source of sin to execute its desires. Now, how does this practically look? Well, let's take alcoholism for a second. And let's say that somebody's an alcoholic, and their mode of acting in the past has been to leave work and drive home, pass a gas station that's not inhabited so people don't see them, and, and buying a 24-pack and going home with it under the cloak of darkness. Nobody sees it, and they get drunk, and they, and they engage in this alcoholism, okay? And let's say they realize that alcohol is destroying their life, and so they no longer want to present themselves to sin. They want to start walking with the Lord. And let's say that they get on a, on a track and they start enjoying that two weeks. And, and one of the things that they do is they just decide, well, I'm too weak. If I go by that gas station, my car is going to naturally turn in there. So I'm going to just find a different route home, right? And let's say that they're doing really well. And then one day, right before this gentleman leaves from work, the boss says, man, our numbers are down. You're not, you're not doing as well as you were. And he, and he has this 
this, this difficult ending to his day. And so as he's going out to the car, the sin nature plops something in his mind, says, why don't you go home the old way? Why don't you, that, might, that might comfort you a little bit. Why don't you go? And so he begins to entertain that. And, and instead of making a right out of his work, which would have been the new way home that avoided that gas station, he now takes a left and he goes right back by that gas station. And guess what he's doing? He's presenting himself to sin. He's putting himself in a position where now he can execute the desires of the sin nature. Now, use your own scenario. <laughs> See, you know, I've never struggled with alcohol. That doesn't make me better than somebody that has struggled with alcohol. I just, my flesh doesn't manifest itself that way. But I can insert a lot of personal stories. I won't do it up here because you don't want to see my dirty laundry, my dirty underwear, so to speak. Um, you've got your own scenarios. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the flesh is, is personalized to you. Indwelling you, knowing how to deceive you, knowing how to work in your thinking. And so the point is this. Don't Present yourself to the sin nature. Don't put yourself in a nearby situation to execute its desires because you know what? This is the truth of the word of God. Death is an automatic result every time you live according to the flesh. And you say, well, wait a minute. No, I mean, I wouldn't admit this, but sometimes I sin and I get away with it. No, you don't. That, I don't care what you think. I don't care if because your spouse doesn't know about it, your parents never found out about it. I, you, can, you can go on and on and put the list of accountability structures in your life. Well, my boss will never find out that I did this. Every time you walk according to flesh, that's the result. And it builds up and it builds up. And you may not see the result, but here's the point. This is why you don't owe the sin nature anything. It will destroy you. And you think you're getting away with something today and you're going to find out the chickens, using an old southern term, will come home to roost, won't they? And those of you who have ever lived long enough to see this to be true, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's true in experience, but it's not just true because it's true in experience. It's true because the word of God says it's true. This is the automatic outcome. So those who are uh, waking up again, crying in their Cheerios, so to speak, living a miserable Christian life, look no further than to the way you're thinking and to whom you're presenting yourself to by faith. That's the solution to your issue. That's the solution to your issue. And uh, as Yoda would say, end well, this will not. And that is uh, ne'er a truer statement has been spoken um, but it's not going to end well for the believer that, that lives according to the flesh. And so he says this, his second argument in verse 13, he says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, so if you live according to the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Okay, and so he brings this in. Again, it's another first class condition. If you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, let's assume for argument's sake that you will, you do then you'll live. You see the contrast? One, you can, you can die and experience a death-like existence in your life, or you can actually live, live abundantly. And again, how do you think that vote would go if we asked that question, what you wanted? I mean, clearly we want to live abundantly. Clearly we want to enjoy the Lord. Clearly we want to enjoy and utilize all the resources he's got at our disposal. Now, notice this, because this is a very key observation, I think, in this passage. But the solution to putting to death the deeds of the body, and, and again, this is assuming evil deeds, is by means of the Spirit. Did you notice that from the passage? Look, at, uh, look back at verse 13, because I want you to see that yourself. It's if by the Spirit you put the de to death the deeds of the body. See, this isn't a 10-step program. This isn't you self-scheming, self-devising a way to conquer sin, because We've already seen the futility of that. See, you need the Spirit of God to actually execute this, this death penalty or holding, the, if you will, the sin nature at bay so that you can walk by means of the Spirit. You can't do it yourself. It's, you know, we get so ingrained that if we just crank a little bit harder, we just tighten the, new, the, the, the straps a little bit tighter, then we can do it this time. We can accomplish it this time. Until we fail again and again 
and again, and we just keep cranking and cranking and cranking down. And, and, and all the while, God is trying to draw our attention to say, this isn't your battle, this is mine. This, this victory over sin's power in your life is not your battle. It's not about you cranking tighter, gripping stronger. It's you need to learn how to, by means of the Spirit of God, begin to put to death the deeds of the body. And so how does this look? How do you, uh, I might say it this way, how do you utilize your MVP? Well, you don't keep your MVP sitting on the bench, right? That's a sure way to lose. So who's your most valuable person? Well, in the area of sanctification, it's the Spirit of God. And so how do we engage him? How do we allow him to begin to put to death the deeds of our body? We've already talked about this. This is review. And if you don't like review, man, I feel sorry for you. Because, you know, you don't learn things the first time you hear it. I'm sorry. You just don't. We need to be reminded and encouraged to always go back to these truths. So how do you engage the Spirit of God? Well, you need to start counting on God's provision for victory over, over the flesh, the sin. Romans 6, you died with Christ to sin. You've been resurrected with him to newness of life. And Romans 6, 11, watch you by faith to start resting and counting upon that truth. Just like you counted on Jesus who died for your sins and rose again to get you to heaven, God wants you to count now on your co-crucifixion with Christ to live the Christian life. That's a faith word. Second faith word, you need to present your members, your body to God as weapons of righteousness. And then when you employ both of these active faith words, when you're trusting in God and his working in you, the spirit of God will be the means to deliver you or to, to, to get you, um, as he says, and I'll just read it, to put to death the deeds of the body. To put to death the deeds of the body. But again, notice it's his job, not yours. It's his job, not yours. Okay, that job has already been filled. There's no more job description. It's not your job description. It's his job description. That job's been filled. And so you are walking by faith. And so when you do this, the text tells us that life, abundant life, is the automatic result when you live by means of the Spirit of God. You know, a lot of times, um, let me just say this. We need to pay attention to our vocabulary. And, and, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why. Because a lot of times, your vocabulary will expose you as to what you truly believe. Because if you're describing your Christian life as, well, I'm just struggling along. I'm just, I'm just really struggling against the flesh. I'm just trying to beat down the flesh in my life. What that reveals is that you're trusting in yourself to deliver you from sin's power. Now, you would never verbally stand up in a Bible study and say, I don't need Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in myself to beat this thing. No. The way that you would verbalize your theology is, I'm tr- I, I need Jesus. Man, I need Jesus. I, I can't do it myself. But when you begin to talk and in your thinking, you expose that you actually don't believe that. You're struggling. You're duking it out with flesh. You're going to beat up the flesh. You're going to put down the flesh. And I remember this old commentator, and this quote has just stuck with me for years. But he said, to be disappointed with yourself is to have trusted in yourself. Man, talk about a dagger to the heart. How many of us are just so disgusted with ourselves sometimes when we fail and fail and fail. And you know, all the time, you should see that when you are disappointed with yourself, it's because you are trusting in yourself. And see, God's got a much better solution. He's called the Spirit of God, who wants to produce the life of Christ in and through you. Stop trusting yourself. Man, that well is, is, is dry. There's nothing there that you can accomplish that the Spirit of God can't do 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times better than you can. We get into this second four, um, and it's a really really interesting uh, concept. I don't know, uh, I mean, I know why Paul introduces it here, but he he says in verse 14, for as many uh, as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And, And, you know, to continue to show that we're no longer debtors to the flesh, Paul's now going to state that we're sons of God. And you say, well, yeah, no big deal. I already know that. But he uses some vocabulary here that's really, it adds some light into what he's saying here. It's really profound. Um, The word sons of God 
uses a Greek word. Um, it's pronounced huios. It's H-U-I-O-S. And what it means is a true son, a mature or responsible son. Um, what's really interesting about this word is it's the same root word, which is translated adoption in our Bibles. And so we're going to look at that real quick. As we'll see, the being a, a huios or this, this son indicates a permanent place in the family with an inheritance. And that's really what the meaning of adoption in this culture means. And I have to give you a little bit of background because, um, you know, you've all, we've all heard the phrase that I've been adopted into the family of God. We've probably heard that or been exposed to that thinking. Um, I would disagree with that sentiment um, because I would, I would say that we're born into the family of God, but then we're adopted as sons. And, and where do I get that from? Well, one of the, the main sources is Galatians 4. If you want to write it down, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go there and look at it. But Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, talks about this, this Roman, this Greco-Roman concept of adoption. And, and here's the difference. When we think of adoption, typically what we think of is somebody from overseas in an underprivileged situation. We're going to go get them and bring them into our family. Now, they don't have our DNA in them. They don't have our genetics in them, but we bring them into our family. We adopt them into our family. Now, it's really hard when that's the cultural concept of adoption because we want to try to read that back into the Bible. The Roman concept of adoption was you adopted your own child. So let that sink in. Your blood child, your genetically related biological child. And the, and the way that it worked in the Roman society was adoption was a way of conf confirming uh, an heir with his inheritance. That's how it worked. And it was up to the father when he wanted to do that. Before that, his son was treated just like a slave. That's what Galatians 4 tells us. Just like another servant in the house. But the day that he decided to adopt his own son, he gave him the, the privileges of be, being an heir to the family wealth. And you know what the father would typically do? Well, what most fathers would do. They'd watch their sons a little bit. They'd say, wow, this, this guy's got some promise over me. And he's faithful. He does what he says. He listens to what I do, what I tell him to do. This guy over here, though, man, he's going to embarrass me if he doesn't start cleaning this up, picking this up. I mean, this guy's not getting it, but this son is. And so he would watch his kids. And, and you see, there was a performance aspect to this. There was a probation period, if you will. When you were born into a Roman family, you weren't guaranteed to be adopted. You had to perform or behave a certain way to gain recognition of your father to one day say, you know what, this guy's going to be an heir. And then he would go through an adoption ceremony. They would get to change togas, a true toga party, right? And he would give them a, a certain toga that now represented everybody in the community knew that this young man was an heir. And here's the great thing about your God. You're a son of God the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. No probationary period. No behavior observation period. God, in fact, Ephesians 1.5 says he's predestined us, not to justification, to adoption. He's, he said that every person who puts their faith in my son, that he died for their sins and rose again, they will be adopted. They will be an heir, guaranteed, take it to the bank. This is why you don't owe the flesh anything. You're rich. You're a wealthy, not just child of God, which you are, you're a wealthy son of God. It means you've been given the inheritance. You have it. It's yours. So why would you go back to the flesh? Why, why would you keep paying the flesh? Why would you keep being a debtor to the flesh when you've got all of these things? And this is Paul's point. In fact, he begins to tell us that we're led by the Spirit of God. In fact, I think an important observation here, if you go back to verse 14, is, is notice he's not putting a condition on this. He's saying, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He's not saying for as many as are following the Spirit of God are sons of God. He's not putting a condition on your inheritance. He's saying that the Spirit of God, every moment of every day, wants to lead you by the hand. That's what he's saying. Because you're a son of God. 
You have an inheritance. The Spirit of God is working continually and consistently. In fact, this word led is a present tense verb, meaning ongoing and continual action. And, it's be- and because it's in the passive voice, it indicates the Spirit is doing this. The Spirit is continually leading you. Have you ever seen a two-year-old whose parent tries to grab their hand when they're crossing the street and the two-year-old won't take the hand? And what does the parent typically do? Okay, go kill yourself then. I'll, I'll meet you on the other side. No, of course not. What does the parent do? Give me, give me, your, give me your hand. Give me, give me your hand. You know, you've even seen those backpacks now where they're leashed up, you know, they're tied down and mom and dad's got the leash on them, you know. This because parents get, this is what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. That image is, is just, is just um, should be overwhelming. And you and I are like the two-year-old. We don't take his hand. We won't take his hand. I was like, no, I think, imagine a two-year-old, no, I think uh, to get to the restaurant, let's go this way. You ever ever listen to to car directions from your kids? Ones aren't old enough to know what's going on? That's hysterical. Turn left here. There's no road there. That's that, blow through it. Go for it. You know, and that's exactly what we do as two-year-olds. We're like, nah, God, I know, I know how to, I, I got this all figured out. Man, you can take the day off. You know, I'll get across that road, okay. Boom, 18-wheeler coming at you. Life, sin, come, just coming at you. And so we see that the Spirit of God is constantly leading. We're not to lead ourselves, and we're especially not to present ourselves to sin to allow it to lead us. You know, imagine if a, just a dangerous criminal took, you know, showed up here and you just said, he said, oh, hey, I'll take your kid to the bathroom. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just go to the bathroom with this crazy lunatic. Oh, we do that. And yet we do that all the time with sin. We, we grab the hand, uh, so to speak, by presenting ourselves to sin and allow him to lead and dominate our life. Let's move on. Verse 15. We'll finish here this morning. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so we notice this contrast in spirits. Um, again, he's giving us another reason, this for why we're not debtors to the flesh. You're not a debtor to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. Why? Because we've received the spirit of adoption. That's a, an aorist tense verb in the Greek. It's a done deal. You've got the spirit of God. That's, Paul is just emphasizing that point, driving that home. Uh, verse 9 through verse 11 is what the emphasis was there. And, but, but notice what you did not receive. And, and notice he uses the word again. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So what is he talking about here? Well, again, notice this word again, meaning that this was something that the believer already had in a point in time. See, you know what the spirit of bondage is. You, you don't have to have a lot of convincing to understand what that is. We just have to point out what it is, and you'll say, oh, yeah, I've, I know what that means. I know how that feels. The spirit of bondage to fear was the believer's pre-salvation state when you were enslaved to sin. Your eternal destiny was unknown. Your uh, relationship, your standing with God was unknown. You lived in constant fear. Um, for those of you got, that, that got saved later in life, you know exactly what your pre-salvation life felt like in this way. And so that's what he's talking about here. And for the believer, we can also remember uh, times where we've been in complete domination by the sin nature, completely governed by sin's power. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I think that he's really trying to bring home is, is why go back to this miserable way of living? Why would you go back to it? Why would you keep paying the piper when you know what this results in? And so, the spirit of adoption, though, is in, in great contrast, right? That's, that's supposed to represent rest, enjoyment. I like that. I, I'm a big fan of hammocks, um, but I don't get to use them too much. But I like hammocks. They're nice. So in contrast to the spirit of bondage to fear, you received something different. You did receive this spirit of adoption. And so what is this? What's well, the exact opposite of bondage and fear? It's the exact opposite. It's, it's totally apart. It's freedom. It's life, it's certainty, it's restfulness, it's this true abundance. You know, if you want to view it this way, the, the wealth of your father is, is at full disposal for you to utilize. You've got everything that you need. That's 
the spirit of adoption. You're not living your life in fear. You're actually living your life in enjoyment of the Father, not worried like, if I make a mistake, is he going to take this from me? If I don't do this right, is he going to remove this inheritance? No, you got it. You have received the spirit of adoption. You're in. There's no probationary period. You don't have to perform a certain way to be accepted by God. You don't have to do something a certain way or with a certain consistency. You're not on a probationary period. That's this spirit is just this spirit of rest and enjoyment and, and acceptance. And, you know, there are people here today that, and I know, I mean, just in any room this size, it could be even be smaller and it's going to be true. There are people here today that need to stop viewing themselves according to their own thinking. And they need to start viewing themselves according to God's mind. See, God, God views you as an adopted son. In fact, if you want to talk about a, a box full of goodies and prizes and, and riches and wealth, God didn't just let you pick one out of the box. He took you and he sat you down and he dumped the whole box on your head. You got it all. And you need to start thinking of yourself in those terms because that's how God views you. And we need to align our thinking with the Lord. Now, one of the things that he did for us, and it's, it's a blessing because we're going to kind of see how this plays out uh, as we go further in Romans chapter 8. But to prove this to you, to prove that you have the spirit of adoption, he has put his spirit inside of you to continually cry out from within, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6 tells us that the source of that cry is the spirit of God in you. And so you imagine as you're living life, the spirit of God is constantly saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, trying to draw your attention upward to the one who loves you unconditionally, the one who died for you, the one who rose again, the one who lives inside of you, it, just drawing your focus upward. And you've got that continual message in your mind and in your thinking. Cry out is a present tense continual action done by the Spirit of God indwelling us. And again, what is he crying out? Over and over, Abba, meaning literally father, my father. It's, you know, the equivalent of, of daddy. You know, it's that, that intimate terminology uh, that he uses there. And so we'll continue um, our study here in, in a couple of weeks. And we'll just continue to look uh, at this idea of being an heir and having an inheritance and being adopted. But I, I hope even just in the passage that we looked at today that you are convinced that you don't owe the flesh anything. There's... You've got so much more that you don't have to keep going to that drywall. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. We want to um, really just be in a position, Lord, on a daily basis. We get so distracted by so many different things, but um, we want to change in our thinking. We, we want to be able to think biblically. We want to be able to think according to biblical truth here, especially as it relates to our sanctification and spiritual growth and um, enjoyment of this life, uh, walking in dependence upon you. And um, so, Lord, would you, just, would you just guide our thinking? Would you convince us of the truths that we need to be persuaded of? Would you put, put your finger, so to speak, on the areas that are preventing that in our life? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.